to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. I'm joined today by the wonderful film critic Christian Lopez, whose views on film you can hear on several podcasts, including Citizen Dame, as well as numerous publications, including The Hollywood Reporter, RogerEbert.com, Forbes, Slash Films, just to name a few. Uh, she's also the editor-in-chief at CC2K. Kirsten, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Excellent. We like to start off each episode by highlighting one short film that you can watch for free online. Uh, today's short is Straight Down Low, directed by Zach Wechter. The film centers around a high school detective who gets between two rival gangs while investigating a murder. Kirsten, do you want to start us off with your thoughts on this film? Sure. This was interesting. I, I always find that when people say something is neo-noir, they don't really understand what that means, or they don't understand what makes something neo versus what makes something noir. It's a very complicated genre to try to recreate, and for for every good one, we get like, you know, 15 terrible ones. But this this one, I was actually really surprised by how inventive this movie was. You could tell that the screenwriters did their homework, and they didn't just watch Mahalindra or something, you know, from the, the 90s, early 2000s. It's obvious that they were really paying tribute to noirs of the 40s. There's a lot of Bogart in this performance, you know, the putting the, the money or putting the info in a book and then closing it. That's that's pure 40s noir, the costuming, the way that our, our main character Socrates talks. And all of that just feels very, the emphasis on Shakespeare, I mean, all of that is very niche 1940s noir. And so I really appreciated it. And I say that as somebody, I like Brick. Brick is kind of the, the one that I think most people gravitate towards in terms of bridging neo-noir with the 40s aesthetic. I think this does it better. You know, it's interesting because I, I got the, the Brick vibe watching this film as well. And it's been a while since I've seen Brick, so I, I don't know if, if I can say that it's done better better but i enjoyed it just as much i really liked the concept and as you said it was a little details like the the fact that shakespeare plays a, a big role in this and like you i liked that he had the little notebook and when he interacted with the various people that he comes across in this film he's confident but never cocky or arrogant he's he's a type of person that I found had some of the answers but didn't have them all. And I find like a lot of films nowadays, especially when they start broaching the noir genre, the the detective is a little too on the nose for everything. I call it like the uh, the CSI effect where, where you they walk into a room and they just randomly know certain facts that there's no way that they would. Whereas I felt this one, everything was off, really authentic in its approach. Yeah, there's no need for a lot of exposition. The, the short is 25 minutes, but you really do get, and it, it's again, it's a testament to good screenwriting that understands what makes those movies work. You don't need long drawn out exposition you get enough of what you need to know from the characters, the way they interact. So you know when the girl shows up, especially if you know Noir, she's usually got a past with the main character, which of course you very quickly deduce. There's that emphasis on class division, and, and Noir and classic film by, by its very origins is a very white media. If you, if you know the history of race in America, our films reflect that. And so... I thought it was really inventive that it's a movie, or it's a short that emphasizes the role of African Americans and Latinos in a genre, in a in a 
film movement that has been very whitewashed. The ethnicity also plays a, a key role in the way that sex is portrayed in this film. With the character of, of Amber, she's got the pass with with the detective, she, but she's not quite your typical femme fatale because you would you would think that she would be essentially the the key object of desire that's interacting with every, with everyone but as the film unfolds and certain things are revealed i really like how this film broaches on a topic that for a lot of communities especially in the african-american community it's still it's very taboo even to this day they're still trying to navigate how to portray it on film and i thought it was done in a really interesting and dare i say tender tender way yeah i think that the concept of having them the the whole mystery be wrapped up in homosexuality could have been very poorly created and and i think that it's again a really inventive twist because so much of of film history is heterosexual and especially in noir where it's about woman is the devil for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. here it's the concept of two people and they use romeo and juliet as a, a launch pad for it but the concept of two people who cannot express themselves because of both class divide, race divide, sexual orientation. There's all these very deeply ingrained reasons why they can't be together. And that ends up leading to this horrible crime that is presumably committed. And I think that that's way more interesting than even some of the the great noirs where it's just you know i don't like my husband anymore i want to bump him off so i I, again i think what the script does really well is looks at those classic stories and says yes but why is it limited because it's about heterosexual cis white people even the little details of how the head got bigs or tyson i can't remember tyson tyson Tyson. how tyson navigates quote-unquote the enemy space by by donning their colors at night so he's able to kind of assimilate without without notice whereas our main detective the minute he starts walking in because he's not representing in the proper colors he's a target details like that and how individuals get in and out of places and how the body is placed and was he really shot first or after like th- those little details i thought were very well done and i wasn't quite expecting it from from this filmmaker i, I believe he's a a young filmmaker i watched another film that he did called election day after seeing this one and it, it reminds you i guess of shades of um alexander payne's election in the sense that it's set in a school and you've got this this big election for a student co- council president and you've got three key individuals that are all running but certain things happen and it, the film t- again takes unexpected turns and how you know there's a few things that are revealed after afterwards that will change the the course of that election and you know i i'm enjoying this director so far I, i'm looking forward to seeing what Wechter does like i i finished this film thinking i would love to see this as a feature or i would love to see another short film with this character going and taking on another mystery while he works his way through high school and maybe on to, to college. Yeah, it's definitely really refreshing to see somebody who seems to understand the genre that he's homaging. And I know it's not popular to do kind of 40s-esque set films, as we've seen with some of the movies and TV shows that have focused on that time period that have not done well. But I, I would love to see more from, from him because I think there's a real passion for film Not in the way of like a Tarantino where it's just kind of throwing out references, but really understanding the tone and 
the the history of it and wanting to change that. Uh, is there anything else you want to say to, about this film? No, I think it's I think it's awesome. People should check it out. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is this is one that people should see. Again, the film is called Straight Down Low, and you can find it on Vimeo or I guess a lot of sites online. Uh, we're going to take a quick moment to change the reels, and then we'll be back with our feature film of the day. <laughs> Our main film for today is One False Move, directed by Carl Franklin. Written by Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson, the 1992 drama focuses on a small-town cop who plans to apprehend a trio of criminals that are headed his way. Now, Christian, had you seen this film before? I had not. Oh, okay. So I'm very interested to, to hear your thoughts on it then. You and I talked about doing something for November and timing issues prevented us from doing it in November. So we're doing it in December. And I, the experience that I have with Carl Franklin as a director was Devil in a Blue Dress, which is, again, a very heavily steeped 1940s throwback neo-noir, but it's set in 1940. Very different from this. This, I feel, is going for neo-noir in the sense that it's modern day but it has old-timey crime elements to it. I think it's a little more akin to something from the 70s than something from the 40s, and that is for good and bad. But I I enjoyed this. I don't enjoy it as much as Devil in a Blue Dress, which I think is fantastic, but this is good. I, I feel a lot of the limitations and the problems that I had with this are related to the script, which despite Carl Franklin being a black director, the script is very white. And there were problems that I had regarding certain characterizations that, that kind of left me thinking, oh, if a director of color or a, a writer of color had been working with Carl Franklin, I think it would have been different. But, but this is very much kind of old school, southern, gritty, you know, dirty type of crime drama. Tom Epperson, I want to say, is an author of crime films. Billy Bob Thornton has talked about adapting some of his books before, and I want to say I read one. And it was very old school, southern, very steeped in kind of the white trash culture. That that seems to be what they're into. But I, I thought this one was good. Bill Paxton's really great. It was actually really great to see him. I, I forgot that he's no longer with us. Yeah always awesome to see him and i want to say that this was around the time that he it was a little after he had done near dark so i i was thinking like oh okay so we're still like in wild card packs in here billy pop and i hate it i think that was the point god i hope that was the point because i i literally could not stand his character and i really didn't care for his performance but again i think that had to do with the script Honestly, I kind of just wanted this movie to be Bill Paxton and Cinda Williams for how, for an hour and 45 minutes because I think they have the best story that, that kind of gets shoehorned in a little bit. It has problems, but I do really find this to be an interesting film considering that it started out as a direct-to-video release that ended up getting a theatrical release based on word of mouth. In yeah. 92. When I saw it, it was back in the 90s, and I think I saw it because of Siskel and Ebert. Um, yeah. They, had, they gave it a really good review. I believe I saw it on video at the time. But it is one that I have always enjoyed, and it's one that I'll, I know a lot of people now have not seen, which I think is a crime because Bill Paxton is so good, and Cinda Williams is, is just phenomenal so it's that kind of, it's that film now when everyone says oh i'm looking for a film that i haven't seen or can you recommend 
I've seen, whatever, 200 films. And I always say, well, try One False Move. And recently I was at um, a TIFF screening of Devil in a Blue Dress. And it reminded me, again, it's like, oh, you know what? I should rewatch One False Move. There's this film, and I want to definitely dive into the script issues. And what I will say about this film is I, I like that each character kind of changes somewhat. Well, maybe not Billy Bob, but our, our view of Dale, Bill Patson's character, at the beginning is almost like a, I don't want to use the term, country bumpkin but like you know that kind of small town sheriff that's out of his yeah but then you you realize he's he's actually not necessarily a bad cop he's just a little too ambitious at times like he's he's somewhat out of his depth in tackling this big city problem that he thinks that he can handle and then you have someone like fantasia played by Sidney williams who for me she's always the most riveting aspect of this film because she has to essentially navigate the three male characters how she is with ray is different than how she is with pluto and even when she interacts with dale later on and you realize that they have a past there's a there's interesting dynamics to it so she's she's the character that i've always found the most riveting but there's still a lot of entertaining moments. There's a lot of tense moments, I find. And you do get the, the 90s aspect of it, looking back at it now. But I, I don't know. There's something about it I still find riveting. Yeah, I definitely noticed. And, and I noticed, too, in the early 90s, when we did get this start of neo-noir, a lot of the characters, you're not supposed to like them. You know, you, you look at something like Red Rock West or uh, yep. The Last Seduction. None of those characters you're supposed to particularly like. No. And so I got that. Like, I understand that, that Bill Paxton's character, Dale, is this anti-hero. At the same time, I feel he kind of gets a pass on certain things because he's the lead and we're supposed to like him. So, you know, it's not just that he's got this white privilege, or what we know now is like white male privilege, which is that he feels he should be bigger, gone beyond the small town, you know, that he should be in L.A. working with the big boys, you know, like he feels that that's his due. But at the same time, when the other cops show up, yes, they make fun of him, but he's also a little racist, you know? Oh, no, he's very racist. He's not. He's very, he's racist. very racist, yeah. And I feel like the movie doesn't really attack that point, you know? Like, the cops are more embarrassed that they talked crap about him while he's standing behind them. But never does, like, is there any critique of the fact that he's racist and one of the cops is black? I also had a real issue with his relationship with Cinder Williams. You find out at the end that they have had an affair and they make a point, and it is in the script, of emphasizing that she was 17 at the time and he was not. And there's this, this illusion in their relationship to not necessarily non-consensual, but a little coercion, you know, in, in the fact that he mentions that she had been arrested for shoplifting. There's definitely that skewed power dynamic. What we would now know is a skewed, well, what we knew then, but what we would now really like call to task is a skewed power dynamic. So those are the things that I was kind of thinking like, I wonder how a woman or a writer of color would have changed those things because at the end of the film, there's this bittersweet moment of not necessarily redemption, but melancholy for what happens to Dale. And I was just sitting there thinking, but he's also kind of a scumbag. <laughs> yeah, it, he's he's a, the scumbag who... He's just the right scumbag. He's abused his power royally. And I think that's one of the reasons I like his interactions with Fantasia, because Fantasia calls him out on it. 
and she's not subtle about it at all. Like he's trying to play big city cop, and she's like, well, you know, we had this encounter when I was only 17, and you knew I was 17, and because of my lighter complexion, you were willing to sleep with me then because I was close enough to wait for you. Right. Well, and there's also that concept of he knows she's not going to say anything. She's not going to force the issue of paternity because of the racial barriers that still exist in this town. Yeah, and he's he's the man of that town. Like, right. Humorous moment where he goes to the, the couple that's having a domestic dispute, and yeah. the, the big city cops, as big city cops do, they immediately pull out their guns. You know, they're, and he's... He just kind of goes up there, defuses the situation, and then makes a comment. He's like, oh, I'm here every week. Like, you know, every week he's trying to shoot his wife and whatnot. It's 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 nothing. So I could see him abusing his power. And then once you have the, the proof of that abuse, i.e. the kid, his first instinct is to deny until things happen in Fantasia and then he's got to realize that I've I've stepped in it and I'm going to have to somehow m- make amends and I don't know if we if we will ever see that and it it would be interesting if a a woman wrote this or a, a person of color because I think Billy Bob's character Ray might not be as prominent as because if anything I think Pluto is far more menacing partly because Pluto is smart and sadistic yeah and billy bob is just kind of a loose cannon every other word out of his mouth is goddamn like literally you can get pretty shit-faced if you took a drink every time he says goddamn you'd be drunk within the first 10 minutes Mm -hmm. that was really what bothered me is that a lot of the writing on ray was just felt so sloppy that i was just like billy bob's performance becomes so repetitive after a while there's nothing interesting in it he's just the you know violent coked out hick who who is the bad guy like i just felt he was very one note yet pluto is far more interesting because he is seemingly the real brains of the organization yet he's always in the background doesn't have a lot of of lines and i feel like you could have really tightened up the fear of these characters, you know, every time Ray opens his mouth, I'm thinking, how are they not caught yet? <laughs> how <laughs> how have they been allowed to get from A to B? And and I think also having a, a trio, this movie I feel has a lot of characters, yet there aren't a lot of characters. And I, I think that a lot of that is because we spend so much time, especially in the beginning with the trio of criminals than we do with Dale. And, and that could have been really great to have Fantasia be the bridge between them. But for the first half of the movie, she's very complacent. The girl, you know, she's crying. She's telling Ray not to hit the, the woman. She saves the kid. But we never really have any scenes of her alone. You know, they, there's no moments where Cinda Williams gets to act by herself. So we never really get her feelings on anything, how she feels about her lot in life. It isn't until the when she's teamed up with Bill Paxton at the end, that we actually get any glimpse into her personality and her life. And I would have liked her death to have a little more meaning to it. And I understand in noir, the woman always dies, regardless of whether she deserves it or not. You know, that's that's what... The, the sins of being a woman in a noir is that it always brings death. Unless it's The Last Seduction, which I actually love that it doesn't end with um, punishment. 
But but here, you know, Cinder Williams' character is genuinely just a woman who's in bad circumstances, and yet she doesn't get any redemption. She doesn't have a moment with, you know, like Bill Paxton has with the kid. Well, she doesn't even, we don't even see her interacting with her son that she seemingly hasn't seen in several years. So I, I feel like, as I mentioned, if a woman had written this or, or something, she really gets short shrift because I think Epperson and Thornton are going for that old school... Not really understanding the 40s. They just, they need a girl. You know, they need a girl to bridge these two halves. The devil is a woman type of thing. And that's that's what happens. And that's, a, that's interesting, especially the concept of her never being alone in this film. And that's something I had never thought about, actually, because she, at the beginning, seems to be the, the, the helpless woman that's, you know, kind of stuck with these two really bad dudes and, you know, raise her boyfriend. So she's kind of seemingly forced to go along with him but I don't know as the film goes on she slowly starts to show that she's a bit more and I and I think about like the scene with the the police officer because yeah. there's that moment when they're at the uh, I guess it was a little gas station rest stop and they're buying a, and cooking a burrito and the cop there's a cop coming in and Ray's instinct is to go for his gun because he's just going to start shooting and she's the one that has to calm him down he's talking all nicely with the police officer Officer, police officer seems to be somewhat interested in her. I know the the clerk makes a, a reference to him liking him young. Yeah, it doesn't age well. <laughs> it, it doesn't age well, but it's also an eerie parallel to Dale, right? Yeah. Because at that point you're like, oh, he's just kind of a creep, and then you see Dale, you're like, oh, this it's it's a whole through line of of these officers liking them young and when that cop ends up following them even though he had no at that point he had no real good reason he was going to follow them until he had some probable cause and even when he didn't he still he still tried to pull them over without having any probable cause which you could say is an interesting commentary on policing in america but at that point you think it's going to be ray or pluto that goes off but it's it's fantasia that gets him out of that situation by killing the cop after she kills him then she has to go back to the oh is he dead you know go go back to that role of the oh i'm just the innocent demure woman along for the ride when you realize that she's she's been calculating this entire time well and also too i think it's where you really do wish the focus was on the two characters of color because pluto does make that point that they're in the south they're two people you know a white guy and a black guy traveling with an african-american girl and that whole concept of the interracial relationship ray doesn't even think about that he just immediately assumes again that kind of white male privilege which is that it's because you know onto them and he should just kill them but there's these really small, subtle nuances that come through because of the emphasis of rape that I feel the script doesn't even really think it's doing. I can't even call it intentional because I don't think the script knows it's doing it. That I was kind of thinking, you know, had the, the editing and the, the choice of camera been on the characters differently, you know, it would have been really nice to see them try to attack those things more. But again, you're dealing with the early 90s where the racial discussion that we were having in 92 was just so contentious to begin with that I think that movies trying to evoke that old-time feel rather would have just just takes the beats from from classic Hollywood and adds in some characters of color to say it's progressive but doesn't really understand how things change once you introduce characters of color into these strictly white genres. Thinking back to, to Pluto, you make a very good point. They are, they're coming from L.A. and they're going through the South. 
and his instinct is be cool we will work our way through this whereas ray is very much i should be able to start a, a fight when there doesn't need to be a fight with a with a cop that mentality between ray and dale as we see throughout the film is completely different to how fantasia views it like fantasia understands the ways of the south and knows when she needs to kind of step in and defuse things the racial dynamics is, is very palpable through a lot of this yeah. film I think it's worth comparing this to Devil in a Blue Dress, which came out, what, three years later in 95, which is directed and written by Carl Franklin. And that movie specifically, it's set in 1948, really looks at the concept of race and the idea of a veteran from World War II wanting to buy a house and wanting to own something and make a life for himself and... Um, you know, trying having to take on this role as a private investigator to pay his mortgage. I mean, every scene, every frame is packed with this subtext about how the character is a black man living in the late 40s in L.A. trying to act, you know, like a white guy and, and own property and, and essentially live his life. I mean, it's impossible to remove. And so I think it's a really great contrast in what a white screenwriter thinks about race in modern day in this movie versus that film. You know, it, they're very, a very interesting series of contrasts. And I want to say, in doing research on this, Carl Franklin's film career, it is incredibly weird. If, you, if you're looking actually based on film, you know, he did a couple actioners in the early 80s. He did what looks to be a Peruvian set story about the invasion of Panama in 1989. He did a miniseries right after One False Move came out. Then he did Devil in a Blue Dress. Then he did a very white... Meryl Streep film you know it's just it's very weird and he's mostly known for television he's directed several television series you know he also did the Ashley Judd Morgan Freeman Kiss the Girl sequel High Crimes High Crimes yep he reteamed with Denzel in 03 for Out of Time which a lot of people say if you like Devil in a Blue Dress that's also good I have not seen it though I'm going to say that those people are lying well in terms of in terms of it being again noirish like like I think when they say, like, noir, they, they you know, one false move, devil in a blue dress, and that. Yes, I, I will agree that it is very noirish. Out of time, it really does kind of feel like one of those old-time, sleazy thrillers. My problem with Out of Time is that it is so ridiculous, because essentially you have a cop who is framed for murder, but his police force doesn't realize that the suspect they're looking for is him. And while he's trying to stay ahead of the cops he's also trying to figure out who framed him there's just a lot of outlandishness that happened in the scale of denzel films it's not necessarily a good film per se it's, it's what is it like the what's one with the train it's like it's like that that version like, unstoppable yes yeah kind of if you if you want a film where you you say this is utterly ridiculous but you're kind of having a good time just watching how crazy it all is then that's that's out of time awesome yeah carl franklin has not directed a film in five years his last film is from 2013 a film called bless me ultima which is a new mexican set drama during world war ii 
about a young man and an elderly medicine woman helping him deal with the battle between good and evil that happens in his village. Directed and written by Carl Franklin. So there's that. But he has not directed a film since then. He's developing a lot of television shows. He's pretty much directed several episodes of a bunch of things. House of Cards, Homeland. He did five episodes, four episodes of The Leftovers, Mindhunter, and he did one of Patty Jenkins' I Am The Night episodes, which I've seen the, tri- the, the pilot for that show and if his episode is anything like Devil in a Blue Dress, I think it'll be a, a great, a great pairing. But it is unfortunate that he's not directed a film in five years. Yeah, I, I mean, on on one hand, he's he's still working, and as you said, yeah. he he's working on a lot of really big, popular shows. But I I kind of want to see more feature films. I agree that Devil handles the the issues of race better and, and in a more I guess palpable way, whereas this one, the the issue of race is always kind of bubbling underneath as you're watching these men kind of abuse their their power in, in various ways. Very interesting to watch this without thinking of Devil in a Blue Dress just because that film is so good. And I, I will throw out it is shameful that we live in a world where there has only been one Easy Rollins book adapted to film. I completely agree. They, they talked last year I think about doing a television series they were developing it for like NBC, which I'm sorry you need a premium cable channel for that but I haven't heard about any movement on that and so I'm I'm a little bummed. You know, it's it's really funny watching One False Move. And again, it's it's written by Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson and those two have worked together very frequently. But I'm looking at Tom Epperson's screenplay listing and just so many of his movies. This was his One False Move is his debut as a screenwriter. And so many of his movies are just problematic and also really southern. He's he's really into the South. And I think about the film he did after this, several years after this, The Gift, with, with Kate Blanchett. Oh, right, right. That movie, which is also co-written by Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson, I think that is the perfect companion to this movie because of all the problems that I had with the the women in it. Uh, Cinda Williams is the only woman in, in One False Move, and, and as I've already mentioned, I think she gets a little short shrift, even though she is given some agency Her agency really only extends to helping out her men because again we never see her interacting with anybody else once i found out that they co-wrote the gift i was like oh okay that makes a lot of sense because that movie has some terribly written women i just i think that these two come from a school that really sees women as kind of these alluring sex objects that get good men into trouble or at least just get not even good men just men in trouble you know like their problems they have 99 problems and a bitch is definitely one you know like that's their mentality i feel and that's why i said i I would have loved to watch this movie where it's just cinda williams and maybe pluto getting involved in hijinks and then bill paxton comes in like i feel there's too much ownership over her in this movie you you brought up the scene where where um ray is telling her to put some clothes on and a lot of you know, what what we were talking about, too, with something like Devil in a Blue Dress, where this emphasis on the light-skinned black woman, there's still that ownership of her that I feel is relatable to women in general, but is particularly relevant to, to black women. This concept of how that they, she doesn't have ownership over her body, she has to cover it up, unless it's going to be advantageous to a situation, and then it's meant to be exploited. But at the same time, when she is locked in this room with, with Dale, who won't let her out, she immediately has 
to go to trying to seduce him. So I, I just, I was sitting there thinking, I would love some poor insight into this woman because I feel like she is just shackled by the men in this film, by the script that just doesn't seem to have a whole lot of respect for her. I think shackled is a good term because as much as she is navigating her, her way through the men and going through her Rolodex of, all right, what type of guy is this? Do I need to be demure? Do I need to be seductive? What have you? She's never free of, like, even yeah. when she gets to get that little bit of time to herself when she wants to see her son and she's waiting for Pluto and um, Ray to show up, Dale pops up pretty quickly. Right, so- and the camera, the camera is from far back. It's his perspective of her interacting with the child. We don't hear, we don't see. It's from his POV. So it's not her POV at all. And I, and I say that knowing that if you read the trivia on this, Cinder Williams was Billy Bob Thornton's wife at the time. I will say that if, if we're going to talk about career paths, Cinder Williams has been working consistently since this film. I think this film really helped to propel her, but I feel that she should also be one of those people that's like a far bigger name. Yeah. There's so many, you know, to, to bogart your point there, there's so many, especially black women, you know, we, we talked about Eve's Bayou and Cassie Lemon. Yep, that's right. You know, I feel like there's so many black women, whether it's directing or acting, that you you watch in these movies and you're like, oh, whatever happened to that person? You don't really know, but they've been working consistently, but they've never gotten the chance to be promoted to a wide audience, unless there are white protagonists leading the charge. Yeah. And she's actually on the poster. Like, she's centrally located on the poster. And, and she is the, the key to this film. Like, at least for me, she is the glue yeah. that holds everything together. She is the most important character in this film, and it's interesting because you brought up two other really good films from that era, uh, Red Rock West and The Last Seduction, and was it Laura Flynn Boyle, I think, was Red Rock West, and Linda Fernchino was Last Seduction, and yeah, and they still went on to have somewhat bigger careers in just in terms of, of name recognition. Uh, I know Fiorentino got a, a bad reputation. Fiorentino is one of my great cinematic losses. I always, I we, we should talk about a Fiorentino film someday because still still one of the, the like most offensively truncated careers I've seen. I am with you on that and it's kind of sad because the 90s had some problematic films in terms of like some of the subject matter but as we see with, with Red Rock West, um, Last Seduction, and especially this film, they, there was actresses that were giving phenomenal performances. This is a film that, again, wasn't even going to make it to theaters, so I, I understand that now a lot of people don't know about it, but even if you're a Bill Paxton fan, this is a film that you should you should check out. I, I will say, to go back to what you were saying about, you know, actresses who whose careers just never developed, now knowing what we know about, you know, Harvey Weinstein and what was happening with blackballing women's careers, you know, you, you always wonder about what actresses never got a chance to work because they pissed somebody off. Uh, you know, you think of, like, Ray Don Chong's... Oh, another girl, yeah. Exactly, which ruined by Steven Seagal, of all people, you know? I mean, we could do a whole year of just covering, you know, movies with actresses who never worked together. But, but yeah, overall, I mean, I think this is good. I don't think it's Carl Franklin's best, but I do think it's really good to watch Cinder Williams, who who I'm sure I've seen a thousand things with her in them, but I think she's really dynamic in this role, even though the script, I think, fails her. And Bill Paxton's really good. I, I, I enjoy Bill Paxton 
when he's skirting that line between being charming and being an asshole. Yes. And even though the character, I feel, gets a little bit of a chuck under the chin at the end, I don't think that character would have worked had it been someone like Billy Bob Thornton. You know, somebody where you really need somebody on that knife's edge of being just, you know, lovable and being evil. You know, again, go watch something like Near Dark. Go watch something like True Lies. You know, where you really get that factor that, like, only Bill Paxson could have... Go watch Frailty. Watch this, and then go watch... Oh, that's another great one, yeah. Frailty is a brilliant film, and and you will understand the true power of Paxton and the fact that he is not with us anymore just makes me really sad. Is there anything else? I know we both recommend it. You have some issues with the film. I do. I do think, you know, it's very 1992, you know, so it has not aged well, but I do think if you are a fan of early 90s noir, neo-noir and especially if you want to broaden your horizons and see some directors of color before it was popular you know i think i think carl franklin is one of those much again like cassie lemons you know people forget that there were directors of color making films in the 90s so you should definitely be seeking out some of their stuff because it was very very rare it's still rare today but i mean the further back in time you go you know you're you're really you're really searching and and this is one of the reasons that i enjoy doing this show is because we can point this out and you know a lot of the the push for representation especially behind the camera didn't just start in like 2017 or 2018 like you can go back there's tons of films that you can go back watch support find on itunes or wherever you uh stream your your movies so this is one that i think you should you should check out uh kirsten where can people find you you can find me all over i am on twitter at journeys underscore film that's where you can find all my writing you can also check out my other two podcasts i do a classic film podcast called ticklish business that's at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com i also have podcasts where i weekly talk with other female film critics about the news of the entertainment world that's called citizen dame which you can find at citizendame.podbean.com and both of those are also on Spotify, iTitcher, Player FM, all of those. Excellent. And if listeners want to get in touch with the show, they can reach us at um, Changing Reels AC on Twitter or if you want to get in touch with me directly, I'm at Small Mind on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes if you have that or Google Play or wherever you're listening to us. And remember, you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time.